Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we are back. We are back, 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 back. We're back after a two-week hiatus. We went on holiday. No, we didn't. We didn't. But um our well, our producer's gone on holiday. She went on holiday to Malta, uh, where we of course are big stars over there. We're a big deal in Malta. And as is proven, we are now number twenty-eight on the Maltese comedy podcast charts. Number and... twenty-eight. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine? Can you oh, I don't need to imagine because we're living it. We're living number it. 28. Number 28, that's just a double digit, that is. Yeah. No three digits like before. Not barely making the top 300 or whatever. Not a hundred and something. 28, that's a proper number. That's something to work with. We're, we're in the top 30. Yes, we're in if the top 30. you can imagine 30. such a thing. Like what was top of the pops? Top 40? Top 40. We smashed it. We're, we're, I mean, you'd have to wait a couple of segments before... Um, who was the one? Who was the one on top of the pops? Right, he wasn't one of the big guys. He was sort of like he was very bland. Presenter. He, yeah, he was like Mark Goodyear or one of those. Yeah, Mark Goodyear, exactly. It was him. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Bless him. Bless him. But we wish him the best. Well, you know what? He stands out. By uh, by, <laughs> by blending in, doesn't he? He does. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, all does. I have to say is, he wasn't one of the big ones. It was very bland. And you say Mark Goodyear, and I go, yeah, that's the guy. <laughs> like absolutely, that's fan club. You heard it here. You heard a fan club. <laughs> He's remembered. Happen. He's remembered. You had an actual happening right there. But number twenty-eight in Malta. Yeah. So it, 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 Mark Goodyear, he'd have gone like, you know, forty to what, four, 31? Yeah. Done that 40 to 31. Uh, or do you do 40? Yeah, you must do 40. Yeah, it must be to 31. And then we come in and there's some sort of indie that. bands hovering How over there. Work, How does that No, it wouldn't have been because you know what? It would have been something like November Rain would have been hovering in the top um, 30, 30 to 40 for months. And then it would have hit really big. Yes. And then it would have gone to number one for a couple of weeks, or it would have been in the top ten for a couple of weeks, and then it would have dropped back down to the top thirty. You're I right. I watched um I watched uh, Top of the Pops two for a while for, for like a few weeks. And November Rain was stuck in the top thirties for months. And then all of a sudden it hit big. Um so so but okay, so 40. 39, 38, 37, 36, oh, yeah. 35, 34, 33, 32, 31. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah. That's 10. Yeah? Yeah. That's 10. It does work. I was just going to do it all the way down to number one, but I've just realised it does work. It definitely does. You don't have a zero in the charts. Yeah, that's right. Well, you've got maybe a couple of zeros, right? People that... People that never made it, that's what we, people... Uh, and that's what we're not, we're number 28. We're, we're not them, we're not zeros, we're, we're quite quite far from it. We're two, which is one of the best numbers you can get. Mm-hmm. Eight, 
which I always like to think of as uh, a racetrack. <laughs> yes, yes, sure. Or the uh, infinity eight, symbol. Number eight is the scale track of all the numbers. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so anyway, we're doing really well. Uh, that's the point. Anyway, you're listening to the new sound of fan club, where uh, the format is we spend the first 15 minutes boasting. Yeah. Then we uh, talk about... Um, Oh, do you know what? I'm on these new pills and my brain isn't working as well as it used to. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what we do is we spend the first 15 minutes boasting, then one or other of us, usually it's me, you say, what have we been a fan of? We also have to say that we haven't said yet, uh, what's the first rule of fan club? Don't tell you. Oh, do tell you. Tell your, tell your friends. <laughs> I can't believe I got the first rule of fan club wrong. <laughs> the opposite. I got, it, I got the exact opposite. Don't tell your friends. I'm trying reverse psychology. In fact, yeah, um, let's try it this week. None of you tell your friends this week. Let's just see what happens in the charts. It hasn't been working like for a, nearly 150 episodes. But um, let's give it the opposite and see if we, if, if no one tells their friends, whether people start thinking there's a secret. And they start investigating for themselves. What I find quite interesting is that we've um, we've had a couple of tweaks from people in the fortnight that we've had off mm. uh, saying, love the show. Yeah. We've had no one saying, where is the show? <laughs> no, exactly. They're um, huge fans, but none of them have missed it. We didn't know that we were going to be forced to take two weeks off. Exactly. We, so we didn't announce it last. We didn't announce it in the last one we did. We didn't say, "Oh, back." Don't worry, guys. Don't worry. Back in a couple of weeks. But we expected for, people would go. I thought this last week. I thought, "Oh, we're going to get lots of people, aren't we?" Asking where the show is. Not one. Not one. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I suspect that we might never come back. Do you know what I mean? Like, if we never came back. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and I reckon what would happen is in about six or seven years' time, yeah, a memory would be triggered in someone and they'd go, Oh, yeah, what happened to that show? I used yeah. to listen to that every week, and then they'd, they'd look it up and they'd find the last one, and it would be kind of like you know, a fairly kind of um, just by the numbers effort, you know, mm. just a, a bit of a back and forth between me and you, a good guest. You know, mm. uh, but nothing that blew any spectacular. Nothing spectacular, yeah. and then we were never heard from again. Imagine that. Who knows? But I was a bit disappointed that there was a lack of uh, lack of a grassroots movement to yeah. find out what was going on with us. But you know, what are you going to do about it? Anyway, first rule of fan club: tell your friends about fan club. Second rule of fan club: tell your friends. Um, and what's the other thing we do at the beginning of each show? Well, we've already done our chart up. placing. We've done our chart placing already. Uh, so well, that's I good. Know you've, um, I'm, uh, my name's Nick, and this is Nathaniel Metcalf. Nathaniel and Metcalf. You're listening to... Five Star Family Fun Size Fan Club. Yes. Um, but of course, of course, our producer has spent her holidays in Malta. So we can only hope that she has been doing some of some grassroots marketing there and has bumped us up to number twenty-eight. I wonder. I wonder if uh, uh, Irene 
our producer this week has had any chance to try any of the local the local delicacy hmm. uh, chocolates that they have in Malta. Yeah, just a, just an orb of honeycomb uh, drizzled in uh, in milk chocolate. Absolutely, they are lovely. They're perfect to eat before you do the ballet. Mm. Absolutely, they are lovely. Of course, you did great. And I imagine great. you can only get them here through one of those shops that does imported sweets and things. No, they sell them everywhere, mate. They sell them everywhere. Okay. Okay. Um, so keep your eyes peeled. I bet it must have been great being on holiday in Malta and being able to say you produce this show. Because I imagine you get lots of like, if you can't get a table in a restaurant or something, you can say, oh, that's a shame because uh, I might have been able to mention this to Nick and Nat when I go back and do uh, produce their podcast, Nick and Nat's fan club on Fubar Radio. And I imagine the last, the last episode, I reckon, would be something like, like you know, um, like the last episode of Seinfeld, you know, where it's just business as usual. Yeah. Um, what have you been a fan of this week, Daniel? Well, for the past three weeks, I've watched a lot of movies. Not a great deal of things have stood out to me. I've seen, um, I have seen some new films, though. I don't know if you've seen them. Have you seen Shang-Chi in The Legend of the Ten Rings? Um, now, is that something that you have to pay for through your Disney Description. You can't get it. It's it's exclusive to cinemas again. No, I haven't seen Shang Chi. Okay. I feel a little bit like um, uh, I need a break from Marvel movies after the last big one. Yeah. That rounded it all off. Yeah. I haven't even bothered watching the latest Spider Man movie. What was that one? Far from Home. Far from Home. Yeah. I watched Homecoming, really enjoyed it. Yeah. And then Far From Home came out and I was like, oh, I don't know if I can be... And then before you know it, they're talking about the next one and it's like, ah, oh, do you know what? It, I was I was never completely absorbed by the bubble and I'm not... What's Shang-Chi like, though? I liked it. It's got a lot of... Um, it's different from the comics. In the comics, Shang-Chi was always much more kind of Enter the Dragon-based. And he, he was working a lot for MI5 and it was a lot more kind of serious kind of 70s kung fu. It was more Bruce Lee, whereas the film is much more Jackie Chan. So it's kind of fun action, but quite good kung fu with lots of kind of quite comic action scenes. In the comics? In the comics, they're much. it's a bit more serious, it feels, or a bit more... Um, he's like, you know... He's great at Kung Fu, but he might work for MI5 and go on missions and things. So it's not really like that. You'd imagine the, I'd imagine the Master Kung Fu film might be similar to something like a Black Widow film would be, where you're being sent off like a James Bond who does martial arts. But they're not, it's not like that. The, the film version is much more kind of mystical East kind of dragons, Kung Fu, um, Studio Ghibli almost version, a sort of Marvel thing. But despite that, I thought it was great. Really enjoyed it. Really thoroughly enjoyed it as a film. And there's a lot going on. 
and it's very and it's also very tied in with everything else and it's quite uh, oh it's that was going to be my question but it's like Is because it, it's it, a new beginning it all feels like it's just like oh yeah yeah you know it's still it's seeding stuff it's seeding lots of things you get the impression it's like okay right do you know what i think one of the things that i miss is just going to see a standalone blockbuster with a beginning a middle and an end Mm. and then if it does well enough then it'll get a sequel it seems like there were hundreds of films what i watched when i in the 90s at the cinema that never led on to anything and it just absolutely (laughs) even even judge dread with sylvester stallone yeah. was sort of like a, just an entertaining movie. I know everyone hates it, but I love it. It was an entertaining movie all by itself from beginning to end. Yeah, it wasn't exactly what was in the comic books, but it was a Stallone movie and it was sort of like Stallone had um, rented the name Judge Dredd to do a Stallone version of what Judge Dredd would be. And then you got to look at it and you were like, yeah, I like that. And if they'd have made a sequel, I'd have gone to see it, but they didn't mm. make a sequel. So I didn't see it. Demolition Man, if they'd have made a sequel to that, I'd have gone and see it. If they'd have made a sequel to Cliffhanger, I'd have gone and see it. They're all, they're all Stallone films, by the way. But I'd have gone to see sequels to any of those films. And um, and it's li- like little things where you see something like Collateral and then Nathan Statham's in it. And um, he's meant to be the same character as he is in Transporter. And you go, oh, look, there's a shared universe. But you don't need anything more than that. And when it requires so much homework, and I think that that is kind of one of the problems that Marvel that Marvel will be facing, really. It's kind of like they're starting their cycle over again. They're like going, right, clean slate. But you still feel... You still feel like you've got like 25 films that you've got to watch before you can start yeah. to enjoy, you know? Yeah, I think that. I think that's true. And I think, you know, I think it's plausible that you could enjoy it without watching that stuff. But you are definitely missing something if you don't. And it wants you to know that stuff. So, yeah, there's a very knowing element to it to be a bit like, oh, yeah, there we go. There we go. It's all tying into this. But that's, but even with a franchise that's as streamlined as uh, Fast and Furious, where mm. it's like literally they're the same characters in the same film nine times i still i'm like i'm not going to go and see the new one because i've got to sit through all the others maybe the best thing to do with those is to just watch one be confused and then try and work it out yeah it does put me off that and i don't go so yeah but you're probably right you know i, I really don't what? bother with those films at all because i've it feels too too far along and the one i have seen was the first one which i understand are very different from what they're like now but I didn't like it. I didn't think it was any good. So it doesn't feel like I've got any investment to go, oh, yeah, I'll get on board with these 10 films. That franchise, I guess, isn't for you. But then, um, but just in terms of, uh, I, I, I know that it's, it's, it's sort of like, it's not the way things are anymore. But I do think that, um, I don't know. I mean, if you say it's like a Jackie Chan type film, I really loved Rush Hour when I went mm. to see that. Well, didn't I? Had to be, <laughs> I mean, to go back on what I just said, I really loved Rush Hour. Didn't see Rush Hour two or three. 
I think three was a belated sequel, though, wasn't it? It was like yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure I saw two. But not I think I saw two, two maybe on video, but like, um, but uh, I, yeah, I but I think I saw the first one twice at the cinema, um, uh, and I guess the third one got made when they were like, "Come on, Jackie Chan won't be able to do this forever. Let's get Chris Tucker, pay him what he needs, and then get him out of retirement, and then we'll, I don't know." Um, but like, when you look at for instance, Adam Sandler movies in the Sandlerverse, like there's a bunch of those films that are sort of interconnected and you can spot them, but they're like, it's there if you want. Hmm. And the same with Quentin Tarantino's, there's like a connection to like all of those films. Um, there's like two universes in the Quentin Tarantino universe, isn't there? Yeah. There's uh, the, the real world, mm-hmm. which I guess is... Um, Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs and Jackie Brown. Mm-hmm. And then there's the films that those characters are watching in in that world, which is stuff like Kill Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's even like a theory that um, uh, Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction uh, goes on to act in the Kill Bill movies. Mm. And it's... Uh, what's her name in Wallace? Mia. Mia Wallace, isn't it? Because she tells that joke, doesn't she, about... And she talk, says she was in a TV show, and the TV show is actually quite similar to... Was it Fox, Fox Force 5? Yeah, and they're all kind of female and, assassins and things. And you go, and oh, the right. TV show, she did an audition for a pilot, or she did a pilot, and uh, and then we're led to believe that Kill Bill is basically... Um, it's basically that series that she's talking about mm. in public. And um, and then there are characters that share the sur- same surname from Inglorious Bastards. Um, so it's kind of like, but it's there if you want. They all smoke the same brand of fictional cigarettes. Um, uh, Mr. Blonde and uh, uh, Vince, uh, Vince and Vic Vega, John Travolta and Michael Madsen are brothers and... Yeah, there's all this stuff that's in there if you want it to be in there, and it's fine. And I like that, because it's there for you if you want it. Yeah. But when it's required reading, <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, come on. <laughs> no. And, and it also makes me feel like there isn't really enough of a story to sort of... If it's just a character introduction because you just want an extra body in a big team-up movie later on down the line then it's just sort of, then you end up feeling like they're just repeating the same formula over and over again because they're just trying to introduce as many characters as possible. Whereas if you had like, one thing that I would say about uh, Batman versus Superman, um, which is a film that I enjoyed um, on some levels, is that, you just jump right in and Batman's got a history that's all, yeah, they, they recap the, uh, the Wayne's getting, getting murdered in an alleyway. Um, but this is Zack Snyder's take on it. And I guess that every film director wants to do their spin on, uh, the, the, the Wayne's getting murdered and little Bruce Wayne witnessing it. Yeah. I guess every, Everyone wants to do that. I don't really have a problem with seeing it over and over again because I imagine um, 
in universe, Batman thinks about it at least once a minute. Yeah. And he'll never yeah. let it go, which is what keeps him going. <laughs> um, but the fact that when you join Batman in Batman versus Superman, you've got all of this history behind him and you kind of like go, oh, he's, it's not an origin movie, which is bizarre that that went so well that their very next attempt at it was to shelve Ben Affleck's uh, Batman halfway through his career movie and go back and do another fucking relaunch of Batman year one. And you kind of like go, we've, we've just do it, just do it properly. Just do it properly. Do it. Follow it you through. I mean? Follow it through if you're going to do it. Don't do like a dark spin on it. Don't make like a. You're allowed to do that later on, right? But just do it once properly. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do like a Tim Burton cartoon version where you've got Jack Nicholson that's got money invested in uh, at the back end of it. So that if he creates like 60% of the Joker's origin, then he manages. Do you know what I mean? They did like. Jack Nicholson made so much money out of it because he made his character um, uh, the guy that killed uh, Bruce Wayne's parents. And you kind of like go, just do it once properly. So that we, like the Batman animate, uh, animated movie, Mask of the Phantasm, and then just see him go out, go out on a mission. Yeah. And do it once. I agree. I think that Batman stuff, I always felt that when, when I saw Batman and Robin, it was like, Oh, I think Zack Snyder wanted to make a Batman movie, and that's Batman his... versus Superman. Yeah, and it's like, and it, it's a really good take, I think, on Batman, and it looks good. Batman looks really great, and there's all that stuff where he's on the walls, and he really is like you can't really see him, and he's hide, and you go, that's much more what it, what he feels like in the comics. That he's kind of a bit like they're kind of creeped out by him. That he's sort of it's he's like a, a sort of presence. Movie. Yeah, it's like a sort of, and cops don't really want to be in a room with Batman either as much as they want to be in a room with uh, the Joker or whatever. It's just that I, I like that take of it. And I, I, I would have, yeah, I would have watched another Ben Affleck Batman movie. And, I, you know, I, I don't mind Ben Affleck. I, I think watch, he's all right. I would have watched a standalone Ben Affleck movie. But if, if all it, he was going to be used for was to be, um, you know, uh, part of an ensemble, I think that that's fine. But I think mm. that he would have done really well in a standalone movie. Yeah. But all I mean is that, that what Marvel are doing is they're introducing all of these characters, but they're introducing them all from right at the very beginning. And because they've created this shared universe, you can't join any new characters halfway through their, their lives uh, because you'd have to explain why they weren't in any of the other movies. So they now have to do everyone. Yeah. But they're all in the same unit. So I find, you know, it's a bit repetitive. No, I can but, see that. It's interesting thinking of it that way because all films, like you say, are franchises now. And if you look at sequels from a different era, like films that came out, did really well, they made a sequel. Like If you watch the sequel to something like Die Hard 2, that's a movie which has come out, but it's not... The Die Hard 2? Hmm? The sequel to Die Hard 2. Oh, Die no, Hard sorry. The, the, the sequel to Die Hard, sorry. That, okay. that you would be like, when you're watching it, it doesn't feel like it's all set or there is the, there has been this ongoing plan. It's a second movie that went in production after the first one did well. That When they were making Die Hard, they weren't going, oh, what are we going to do in Die Hard 2? 
it was a standalone movie and it does and when you watch them they do feel different like you see those trailers to the trailer to die hard 2 is filmed first and has bits in it which aren't in the movie where they've just gone let's do a trailer and get that out just to let people know it's coming um the uh the trailer to alien 3 is about the aliens coming to earth and it's like no it isn't when it comes out it's just basically the trailers there to almost tell people yeah we're doing another one guys doing another one and then they sit down and come up with the idea but I understand, but that's when you get into Star Wars, and you and you kind of like go, "Well, you haven't planned, you haven't planned three films." Mm. If you know you're making three films, plan three films. If and they know that they're going to do more with the Marvel characters. Um, I just think that the problem with the problem with Marvel is they're all very much set in the real world. So you've got a load of superheroes like Fantastic Four and Spider Man. Um, they live in New York. Yeah, they so, live in the same city. <laughs> so it's like if if Spider-Man is up to something, then it would have some sort of impact on what the Fantastic Four are up to. Exactly. Right? But they're already at that and, point now, aren't they? Because Captain Marvel was a film where they had to do a film that's set in the 90s and then have a reason for her to... why people don't really know about her. But she's been around, but uh, it's kind of like a secret, and then they have to bring her into the 21st century. So they're already trying to that, come... At, come up with reasons why how that's possible and the fact that she's so got so many superpowers that she could like end the the final yeah. movie you know but then they've got the same problem with dc where wonder woman 1984 and it's kind of like well wonder woman 1984 sure but you did say that no one has heard of her heard from her since the first world war in your last movie and they're sort of like going oh yeah forget about this shared universe i much prefer the idea that occasionally there's team-up movies and occasionally yeah. there's crossovers, but it's like the comic books and maybe you're reading a different comic this week and there's no real shared continuity, but you yeah. just use your characters as and when. That's fine. I don't I don't need it to be like an episodic... It doesn't mm. need to be like EastEnders and it's episodic and there can just be adventure... And you, know, and you need to see the last one for the next one to make sense. There's just sort of like adventures that they go on and then you use them as and when. Like, you know that there's a history behind these characters. Um, and, and when you look at the original Tim Burton films, um, the Joel Schumacher ones, they were origin stories. They were origin stories for the villains. Yeah. yeah so Batman, was, Batman was this character that was constant. And then the, and the villains, you know, and you kind of want them to stop doing that as well. Where it's kind of like, oh, Mr. Freeze's escape from prison, which is what they did, actually, didn't they? Yeah. 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 So I guess what I'm saying is <laughs> the best superhero movie that's ever been made is Batman and Robin. <laughs> that's how it they does do it right. They should do them all like that, yeah. They should do them all. Right. Totally disposable. Let's not talk about superheroes. Um, we've got a song coming up in two minutes, don't we? So, hmm. We could oh, well, I guess we just talk until that. What else have you been a fan of? You saw Shang-Chi. So Shang-Chi, I saw Annette, which I wasn't really a big fan of. Have you seen that one? You heard of this film? It's the musical film with Adam Driver and Marianne Cotillard. Oh, yeah, I've heard of this, yeah. Go on. And it's got music by Sparks, who have suddenly taken on a, 
uh, have suddenly become famous again off the back of a documentary, it seems, and are now doing the soundtrack to this movie. And it's a very, it feels like it's an odd movie. And I was up for watching an odd movie. And I feel like, yeah, this is good. This will be fun. And when I watched it, I was just like, nah, it's just like, it's almost like very knowingly a bit weird. Do you know what I mean? And they've got like uh, an animatronic baby in it who's meant to be like a a baby in it. It's theatrical, as I guess musicals ought to be. And so you've got things in it like one of the characters is like this little girl, this little toddler, but she's animatronic and you're just a bit like, do you know what? And, and And I kept trying to convince myself I was enjoying it, but then I was constantly looking at my watch going, how long is this on for now? Well, so it's like an animatronic doll-like war horse or something. Yeah, well, the, the, there's a little girl in it who is Annette of the title, and she is the child of Marion Cotillard and Adam Driver, but she is played with like as sort of like, I guess not an animatronic necessarily, but a puppet. She's a puppet, a very sort of clever puppet um, and quite lifelike and quite... It feels like you're watching something theatrical. Like, if you're watching someone puppeteering this on stage, you'd probably go, oh, that's neat. It looks real and the movements are very natural. But when it's in a film where they can stop and edit around it and whatever, there's just this thing where you're just watching a film that just feels like it's almost being weird for its own sake. It didn't feel like... I was like, sure. Right. Got you. Got it. Almost like... And it's the kind of thing, like, if it was in one scene, you'd be like, oh, that's a fun little bit. But it's like you're watching a film with, like, an animatronic kid in it. And you're like, okay. And then, you know, so what, there's a song. Like, so, it, so it's art house? Yeah, I guess, yeah. It, but it looks like it's got a hell of a budget to it. It's quite impressive. But I guess that's how you get a big budget, by making the aesthetic theatrical. So all, I guess, you're building off big theatre sets rather than sound yeah. stages. So I guess that's how they do it. So it looks kind of, it looks stylized, and I imagine that's how they've done it. So it feels like it's expensive, but it's probably theatrically expensive rather than movie expensive. Right, yeah. And you've got Adam Driver in it, so it's probably like, you've probably got a fair bit of budget there where it's like, he's a big deal now. He's a star of this film. So, and I was up for it. I just, it left me a bit cold. But it is one of those films I've seen lots of people saying how much they liked it. And I, I, with the best will in the world, I was, I can't lie. And I was just like, I looked at my watch a lot during the film. Oh, so you've not been a fan of that? No, I can't say I have been a fan of it. No. Um, well, let's play a song and then... We'll, we'll find out what you've we'll, been a fan of, maybe. We'll keep talking, I suppose. <laughs> and the Daniel Metcalf Fan Club on Foo Bar Radio. And we're back! We're back, we're back, we're back. We're back! Here we're we back. are. We're here. Yes. So, Nick, so what, what have you been a fan of this week, conversely? Well, I'm not really... It's not really a fan. Um, um, well, what, I have seen stuff. Oh, I started watching The Boys. Oh yeah, how's that? Incredible. Oh really? I thought it was so good. I was like, um, I kept, I kept missing bits because I kept turning around and saying how good it was. 
I loved it. Um, well, I really, really, really enjoyed the Suicide Squad, and I don't think it did very well at the box office. <clears throat> and I think it's just like, um, uh, well, you know, when you get given good stuff, people don't, <laughs> people don't like it. <laughs> and so, you know, it feels like, um, it feels like, I don't know, it just felt like, it felt like a film that I really, I, if it was a comedy, it's a comedy. Suicide, the, the Suicide Squad felt like it was a comedy mm. that had um, bits of action and stuff in it, but the action stuff really didn't uh, keep me that entertained, but the comedy when you see something and I thought it was a really had a really dark sense of humor and I started watching the, somebody said oh you should watch the boys it's sort of like got a similar tone and yeah it does and it, I thought it was great it was really sort of um I mean the second series has started now so I'm way behind but I don't tend to watch a lot of tv and it's like one of the only tv shows that I've ever gone oh this is great what is, there's also sort of like a BBC uh, show that's um, come out that's set in Hull and it's about a bunch of whalers from Hull that have gone on. Oh, I'd not what heard is... that. Someone had mentioned this to me yesterday. Uh, my friend John was saying, was I watching it? And I was like, I've never even, I don't even know what you're talking about. What is it called? It's called, isn't it called something like the, I don't know, this might be one for you, Irene. I think it's it got Stephen Graham in it or something. It's Stephen yeah. Graham as like a whaler in uh 19th century or something i was going yeah so it's obviously like a big show but i was like going i honestly don't know what you're talking about i presume it's been very widely well, again, advertised but i just don't very, know about it it's very theatrical and uh like including the acting the acting is very theatrical the staging is theatrical the sets are theatrical it feels very theatrical it feels like a national theater production right um for the first half and i was kind of like not really that involved and then the second half of the um this is episode one, by the way. Not the entire, not the entire show, but I just episode one, and the first half of the first episode was very theatrical, and I was kind of not really enjoying it. And then the second half kicked in, and I just think you, there were just some absolutely magnificent shots. The stuff that you don't see is brutal. It's about um, at one point they all go seal clubbing, and it's like really quite graphic and. I've never thought about it before. You know, it's kind of almost like a punchline. Like, I'm going clubbing tonight, you know, <laughs> and um, and it's sort of so detached from what it actually is. So when you actually see them clubbing seals, it's, you know, it's horrific. And um, I just, yeah, as I said, it didn't have me from the very beginning, but then I got on board as it went along. And, um, yeah, I thought it was... I thought it was brilliant, whatever it's called. Um, but I watched that, and then I watched The Boys. I went to see Massive Wagons on Saturday. Oh, yeah. How was it? It was great. It was really great. Um, it was just it was just little things. like So, so um, Birds from Massive Wagons was a guest a few weeks ago now. Um, and uh, we've... No, I've never seen them live. I've I've listened to their music, um, and uh, I went along, 
Uh, I took my music producer and my girlfriend with me. And um, what's really weird is that you're listening to music and, and it's so loud that it's going right through your body. You can feel it and feel the sound waves hitting your internal organs. And um, and it's it's a volume that I've not heard in 18 months, you know. <laughs> I, I would never have my music that loud in my living room. Um, I would listen to music quite loud on my headphones, but it's not the same. And you're in a room full of other people and the music is playing and you can't hear anyone talking over it. And it was just, it, it was quite emotional, you know, to go to your yeah. first music gig and to, um, and I, I appreciate I'm only talking about the volume, right? But it was, it, it was sort of like this quite emotional experience where you realise you're allowed back out to do stuff. Yeah, yeah. Do certain things. I haven't um, really challenged myself in that way, I realise. Like, I've done things... And and to be fair, I've probably do a lot of the things that I would have done pre-pandemic. But like when I go to the cinema, I tend to go during the day. So I, it's likely I'm sitting in a fairly empty cinema anyway. Do you know what I mean? It's not like I'm in a packed room ever. And I certainly haven't really done that kind of stuff. I think go to like a gig or something. It just sort of feels like, and I don't know how that would feel either. Like, would I be all right with that? Or would I be a bit, was there an element to it where you felt ever like, oh, this is weird, actually, I don't like it. Or are you very much like... I think everything's weird. I think if you go to the pub and you, and you get to the door and you're kind of like they're waiting to be told what to do. Mm, yeah. um, or if you go into a shop and you don't have a mask on, it's kind of like um, you're waiting for someone to tell you off or, and it feels like it's literally up to you at this stage. Mm. Um and so, yeah, I think that there is a bit of trepidation. There is, it is a bit weird sort of like doing stuff, but then what are we meant to do? Not do stuff again. And, um, and you've got to try stuff until, until we're told that we're not allowed back out again. It feels like we should be trying to sort of like get on with stuff, I think. Or it, yeah. it feels like that to me. I rarely leave my flat. Yeah, I'm sort of like I've, and I think it's had very negative repercussions on my mental health. Um, the last few months have been like some of the, you know, it's been awful mental health wise for me. I've been really struggling, um, and I don't, I don't think it's all down to lockdown or stuff like that. But I think that um, it hasn't helped, and I think just. What I'll say is, I, I've had, I've, I've had, I've had the worst two or three months that I've ever had, um, and over the last few weeks, I have had the worst um, couple of weeks uh, through uh, mental health, but the, but the worst, and um, um, and I went to see. I went to see I went to see the band and um and I think they are a great band. That's why we had them on the show. I I, I love their music. I think they're brilliant. Um and if this band isn't for you, or you have another band that you like, or you have another thing that you like doing, 
just got to say, I went to this thing, and but when I came out, I had a complete 180 on how I was feeling. I I, I almost cancelled going because I felt so shit. And I went, and I met up with uh, uh, my music producer, my friend Andy, who did all of the music from Uncle with me, and um, has done all my albums with me. <clears throat> And we went, we had a little chat about what we wanted to do and, you know, getting back in the studio and working on new music and new stuff. And then that energised me. And then we went into the gig and the gig was brilliant. And I and I left and I felt like, oh, I've actually got a bit of control over my life again. And I think if you are putting stuff up, if you're scared about stuff, it's all right to be scared and it's all right to sort of be... Uh, uh, have feelings of trepidation about it. Um, but I also think it's worth trying some stuff. I spend most of my time in my flat and I'm not going out just like it's back to normal. But I went and did this thing and there's a couple of other things that, you know, I'm dipping my toe in the water. But if it's all taken away from us in this in, in autumn or winter and we have to go back into a lockdown or whatever, then you know then fair enough but it, as long as we're allowed out i think we need to sort of hmm. give it a go and you can go at your own pace but i realized that i'd really missed this sort of thing i'd really missed live music i'd really missed bands alice cooper's tickets for his uk tour next year have just come on sale and it's like great like i, I go and see him every year and i've missed it the last two years and I just and and it's 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 silly. I that man is is like half my life. I love him. Yeah. And it's not just it's not just that I want good things for him as a human being. And I like you know it's not like it's like his music has a positive effect on me. It helps me creatively. It helps me emotionally. Uh, you know. Um, and so whatever that is for you, what if this show is about anything? It's about what what do you like? I mean, I know me and Nat almost exclusively talk about films every week. And we've got <laughs> lovely listeners that um, that don't know what the fuck we're talking about every week, but sort of make a little list of the films that that they should see or films that they want to see um, based on what we talk about. But it, it also you should find what it is that you love in the world and, and you do that. And um, going to see live music really helped me mentally. Um, and and it, and it meant a lot. I know I've, I got a bit emotional then, but I'm, I'm probably going to get a bit emotional again because I think that we should uh, mention the fact that Norm MacDonald died yesterday. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I might cry about this actually. Um, but um, I, th I, I've, I've spent like the last the last couple of months. One of the things that's really helped me get by is watching uh, Norm Macdonald. I thought he was such an amazing comedian, um, and it's really, really, it's, it's so weird. It's really hit me hard. Um, I found out last night. And I had some, I had really vivid dreams about it all through the night. And we watched um, 
he made a film with Dave Chappelle and Danny DeVito called Screwed, which is not a great film, but it's not a terrible film. And uh, and, I, and I'd never seen it. Um, I've, I was going to watch Dirty Work, but I've seen it so many times. And uh, I was just like, well, I haven't seen this one. So I thought, and I almost didn't watch anything because I thought it might be a bit too much. But um, but I enjoyed that. Dirty Work is um, hasn't aged great, but I still think it's, um, for its time, it's like a time capsule. We had Bob Saget on uh, last year who directed it. And Bob talked a, a, a bit about Norm Macdonald when he came on the show. But Dirty Work is a great show. Uh, it's a great film. Um, and um, Norm Macdonald's special, Hitler's Dog, which is on Netflix, which most people have access to. That's a great... Um, I mean, that's an amazing stand-up special. He's just got such a, a turn of phrase... And he always, and, and if you watch clips of his interview show and his podcast that he did, um, he'll get a guest on. He always plays like the idiot, right? And he'll have a guest on and the guest will sort of like, like sometimes occasionally, they don't really get him. Like uh, if you watch Norm MacDonald has a show on Netflix, uh, there's an episode with Michael Keaton. And Michael Keaton is kind of like doing all of his anecdotes and being kind of like Michael Keaton. And I really love Michael Keaton, but you even get the feeling that Michael Keaton underestimates Norm Macdonald because Norm Macdonald plays like he's an idiot to lull people into a false sense of security, but he's always the smartest person in the room. And um, and even Michael Keaton sort of like underestimates him while they're talking and he'll patronise him a bit or talk down to him a bit. And I just think that he was such a, he, he was such a, a great comedian. And when you see him on... So there's some YouTube stuff. This um, he does the moth joke, which, which is worth watching, and he did the um, the Bob Saget roast, which I think is sort of like one of. I must have been watching that for like ten, fifteen years, and um, I share it with people that I just meet and I talk to. And you go, do you like Norm Macdonald? And have you seen this? And depending on how people react to the Bob Saget roast, kind of like lets you know, you know, what who you're dealing with. <laughs> and it's such a gentle, it's such a horrific um, concept for a show to have people coming on. And it's got worse and worse over the years. And when he went on and did it for Bob Saget, he just went in with the most gentle 1950s kind of jokes and people in the room are like laughing, but you can tell they don't really get the joke. And the joke is that he's not going to play your game. And he finished the Bob Saget roast by basically saying, yeah, we're roasting him. But he's a, a wonderful man and a wonderful comedian. And he doesn't even end on a joke. He just says how much he loves Bob Saget and then he leaves. And, um, and that's sort of like the kind of, you know, he got into a lot of trouble. Um, over the years but he was always very loyal to his friends um and um sorry if this is like really silly but he just he just meant he meant he, he meant uh, he meant a lot to me and i think he's brilliant and um genuinely one of my favorite comedians and i can't believe he died um and um yeah that's hmm. it was interesting last night to see like how many people were talking about him 
and you think, God, there's more people talking about Norm Macdonald now than I've ever seen talk about him when he was alive. And I do think it's a good thing, which I guess, which this show, when it works like it's supposed to work, is about celebrating things people like. And I do think it's kind of a shame that it's like, it's almost like people keep it a secret. It's like yesterday, there was so much kind of outpouring. And you think, God, it's really sad when that happens after someone dies. Whereas actually what we probably should be doing, like you're talking about massive wagons, it's kind of about sharing the things and those kind of moments and things we like is kind of what this was meant to be about in the first place. And it was always about the idea of let's talk to people about what they think is really good. And that's, and it was that kind of positive thing. And I think it's, and as you're right, we do always end up talking about films because that's what we like. And it's, and it's been a really nice uh, show for that. And I really liked when we've dovetailed of interests and how many times we've had that thing where you say, I watched this this week and without even mentioning it, and it wouldn't be like we had both seen the latest movie that was at the cinema. It would be like independently of each other, we've both watched Trapped in Paradise with John Lovitz, Nicolas Cage and Dana Carvey. And we'd spend half an hour talking about Trapped in Paradise. We, we wouldn't have, no one sets out to say, to go, hey, do you know what we should do this next week? We should both watch Trapped in Paradise. It's that way how our interests of what we're watching and these little um, wormholes we go down kind of intersect. And those are the things I always think about. It's go, when the show works really well, I think it's those moments where it's like, we've both just happened to watch this same film from the 90s. And we're probably, let's say, possibly the world, I'd say certainly the country, the two, only those two people, only me and you, will have watched that film in the past week. It probably wasn't even at Christmas. It was probably in July or something. <laughs> we've gone, we've both gone, let's watch Trapped in Paradise. And then we come in and go, what are you watching this week? Trapped in Paradise. No way. And it would happen all the time that we've both seen the same movie or we've both ended up, we're not watching the same movies, but forever it kind of intersects. And then we end up talking about this thing where, whereas I think me and you, it's, it happens a lot where you can say, I reckon we must be certainly the only two people in the country who have watched this film independently of each other this week. <laughs> like there isn't someone else, or maybe there is, maybe there's someone else who had also watched it. But the, the likelihood of this many movies, you know, we're never going to see all the movies, but the likelihood that we would both watch these films once mm. a week. And I think when this show works well, it's when it's that kind of, when it is that and it is a celebration of things you like so i think if you do like things you should tell your friends that's the whole thing about it you know and i think especially things like norm mcdonald was really nice last night and the amount of people talking about him and you think god well you could be talking about him all the time and you could be talking about someone else that you think is brilliant all the time and it's well, that kind of uh, that's what it feels like yeah there are loads of YouTube compilations of kind of like him on subjects and, you know, he's not always politically correct. Um, but, you know, you can just get lost for hours watching Norm Macdonald clips and all of his Saturday Night Live stuff. The the the, the, the clip I was going to mention was um, of uh, David Letterman's last, um, uh, last time hosting... Uh, what was his show called? The... T 
Tonight Show. Tonight Show. Yeah, Tonight Show. Late. Was it Late Show and then he? I just watched show? that documentary. I've just watched <laughs> that documentary, and I can't remember. There's so many late night shows. It was David Letterman's last show, and Norm Macdonald comes on and does a does a bit. And then at the end, he's sort of like in tears because he's such a big fan of David Letterman. And that's the thing. It's sort of like he was a very funny private guy. Um, and then every so often, you know, you saw like the real person and his emotions sort of like. Mm. Out. And um, I just I just thought he was great. And he's not like the most well-known comedian. But so if you haven't and you feel a bit left out and everyone's talking about Norm MacDonald, you know, just start YouTubing him and... Um, and yeah, he, he's 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 really great. He was re- he was really wonderful, and it's it's awful awful news. Um, right, okay, so we should do some fan mail now. We should, we should probably do a quick bit of fan we've got, mail. We've got three minutes to do some fan mail, so let's do some fucking fan mail. Hi, Nick and Matt. Hello. Hi, Nick and Nathaniel Metcalf. I went to the cinema this week to see Candyman. It was an utterly brilliant reimagination with a great balance of laughs and creepiness and some fun. some some fantastic cinematography. Which horror films are you most looking forward to? Halloween. Cheers, Lewis. I saw Candyman. Mm -hmm. I saw the original Candyman. I really love the original Candyman. I think it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely fantastic. It's so good. It's sort of like it is. It's like an urban legend, but it's also um, like a gothic fairy tale. I think it's absolutely stunning, fantastic. Love Candyman. Doesn't quite make sense why do they call him Candyman? There's like one shot of some razor blades and some candy, and you go, "That's yeah, sure," but that's nothing to do with yeah. the Candyman. <laughs> yeah, I've never thought that. Probably just a cool name. Sounds like a cool name for a villain. You say, you say Candyman five times in a mirror and all of a sudden the ghost of a uh, uh, a, a black slave who got murdered by uh, white villagers for falling in love with a white woman uh, and gets smeared in honey and killed by bees and has his hand cut off and a hook stuck in it, <laughs> uh, he'll come and kill you, which has got nothing to do with Candyman. So it's kind of like... So, I think the film Candyman in your head is basically like a leprechaun movie where a, 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 a mad Willy Wonka figure goes around killing kids with poison candy. But that's not what the no. That's not what the fucking. I don't know why it's called that. There's bees. Why is it so there's honey? But there's not. He's not honey, called the honey, honey man. Wait, the honey monster. Called, the honey the monster. Honey monster. Right? So Candyman doesn't work. I thought the the, the remake, reimagining, reboot, sequel. It makes it even more confusing. I think it looks nice. What am I looking forward to doing this Halloween? Tell you what, Nathaniel, mm-hmm. this is my plan for Halloween. Yeah, I got a plan too. I'm going to do a triple bill, and I'm going to watch all three uh, '80s remakes. I'm going to watch The Thing, The oh, Fly, nice. and The Blob. Oh, that's a good one. That's so cool. I've not, I've never seen the blob. So I'm going to end with the blob, or I might put the blob in the middle. But uh, start with the fly, then the blob, and then finish with the thing. Right? But I think that those three are kind of like I've always tried to put my finger on what Halloween is to me, and I think it's it's not Aliens, and it's not even John Carpenter's Halloween, uh, which doesn't even really sum up Halloween to me. It's just a guy with a knife killing people. 
that's not what I find spooky about Halloween. But I think if you cross between mad scientists, uh, killer aliens and uh, blobs that absorb you, I think I've got my Halloween fix if I watch those three films in a row. What about you? Well, I traditionally, as I have for the past sort of five or six years, I try and watch a Hammer movie, a Hammer horror that I've never seen. There's so many of them. I love loads of them. I try and watch one I've never seen. And this year, I'm going to watch Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. Sure, I've seen Citizen Kane, but can you believe I've never seen the film Blood from the Mummy's Tomb? So I think I might I try and watch that. Not seen it. Who's in that? Who's in that? Andrew Keir, I believe, who's the kind of bearded guy from he's in a lot of the uh, Hammer movies. So it's not got any of the big... So like, basically, I think I've exhausted the ones with the big guns. I'm now looking at mummy sequels. Uh, but it's been a nice thing to feel like, oh, yeah, this is how you get to watch all these obs- more obscure ones. You sort of save one and go, never seen it. And I get to watch a brand new Hammer film. Well, that's great. Save them up. Save them up. I hope that answers your question, Lewis. Uh, is our guest in the... Is our guest, uh, she guest is. is in the room. Well, we've got no time for these uh, last two bits of fan mail, I suppose. Thank you for um, writing in, and hopefully we'll get in. to them at some point. And we'll get to, them, we'll get to, them, we'll get to them next time. Okay, uh, right, well, let's play a song and bring our guest in. Yeah. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Bar Radio. And we're back, we're back, uh, we're back live, we're not live, we're pre-recorded on a Wednesday, and we are in the studio, we're not in the studio, I'm in my spare room, and Nathaniel's <laughs> in his washroom, and we're now joined by uh, novelist, author, and screenwriter, uh, Jennifer Niven, uh, to talk about her new book, Take Me With You When You Go. Uh, hello Jennifer, how are you doing? I'm doing great, how are you? Well, we've just had we've just had a chat. We've just had a chat about Norm Macdonald that we're both quite sad about. So we've had a weirdly quite emotional um, segment of the show, which is weird. But we're we're good humour now. It really is. So we'll we'll lighten it up here. (laughs) Where where are you right now? Right now, I am in. um, I'm on the coast of Georgia in the U.S. Oh, lovely. Yes. Very warm. Is it nice out? It's quite balmy here. Quite no balmy. Um, are, these, are these all of your Funko Pops that are behind you? Yes, they're not all of them, but many of them. I, as you but, can tell, I like them. You know, I yeah, enjoy them. So do I, right? And I've got like I've got an issue that I've got to talk to you about, right? Okay, so I've got one here, and I've got like a wall of them over here, right? Yes. And. I bought one the other day because I really liked uh, the film The Suicide Squad and it had the character uh, Shark King played by Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. It, oh, right? yeah. And so to commemorate my, uh, fun- <laughs> my, my love of the film, I bought myself a Funko Pop of Shark King and it's the first one I've taken out of the box. Really? Um, yeah. Oh my god! I see that yours. Well, the first thing was I was surprised by how small a Funko Pop actually is when it's out of the box. Yes, it takes up much less room and space. I, as you can tell, as soon as they come, I just rip the boxes open and put them up. Yeah, and you just throw the box out, right? 
I just throw the box out. Sometimes, you know, actually I've been known to like cut out the little picture on the side and use it as a bookmark. Oh, that's but, nice. Yeah. That's nice. Like, you know, for my favorites, but. Now I'm trying to recognize some of the Funko Pops behind you. And am I well, right? Oh, go on. Oh, go ahead. No, I want to see if you recognize them. Well, one of them appears to be like, <laughs> is it a Catwoman? But is it a Catwoman from the Adam West sort of? It's Julie Newmar, right? Is it a Julie yeah, Newmar? It is. Catwoman. It is. It's, it's Julie Newmar. I mean, I can't believe you worked in a comic shop now and yeah. I got that it was Julie Newmar specifically. That is good. That's very impressive. I don't know if you've realised this about us, Jennifer, but we're a couple of cool guys in this country. I don't know if you've picked up on this. I, Just in case I, you don't. It's so apparent and i'm also very lucky to be here with you all today <laughs> can i just go because i think that this is actually a thing that is actually holding me back in life so are you saying <laughs> just take take them out of the box and and enjoy them for what they are right i am saying that i mean unless you want to resell them down the road which the thought just makes me so sad i just say take them out of the box let them live and be free why you am know? I saving the packaging? I mean, it and it it saves space. You can you arrange them with varying Funko Pops, mix it up a little bit. I mean, there's no end to the fun. But what I will say about Funko Pops, right, for me, right? Um, now, this wasn't planned, was it, Jennifer? But what I will say, <laughs> I don't think I you can it, plan though. a conversation. I don't think you can plan a conversation like this. But what I would say about uh, Funko Pops, for me, they were the next stage in evolution from, like, uh, bobbleheads and wacky wobblers, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. I have this, right, oh, which wow. I bought from Universal Studios in Orlando. And it is a Terminator 2 oh. uh, from 1992 Wacky Wobbler bobblehead of John Connor, because nobody wanted John Connor. Uh -huh. It was Edward Furlong. And I must have bought it, what, 10 years ago? It's still in the packaging. But the whole thing about a, a, a bobblehead is that it's head bobbles, and when it's in the packaging, it obviously can't move. Right. Now, if you shake the box, will it bobble, or is it just really solid in there? It's really solid, yeah. And I think sometimes what they do is they put a bit of polystyrene in the neck to stop its head right. from jiggling. Of course. And I've got loads of bobbleheads that are still in the boxes. Doesn't it make you sad, though, that they're not, I mean, they're born to bobble, right? So you're not getting to, you know, they're not getting to fulfill that destiny and you're not getting to enjoy that. Yeah, I, I, I think that you're right. But what I would say is when I was 12... I collected every single cinema ticket that I ever had. Mm. And I That's went through a phase of going, I'm grown up now. And I threw them all out. No. And uh. I've never, I've never uh. forgiven myself for going through like, you know, I went through like, I had like a burst of, I'm going to be, do something productive and I'm going to th right. throw this stuff out because I don't need it. And then afterwards I regretted it. And I guess I have, that haunting me for I, now when I have stuff in packages, can I unpackage it and get rid of that? And will I regret it straight away? What if you were to take them out of the boxes, but save the packaging so that if you needed to, you could put them back in the packaging and you now, wouldn't be losing that. 
but you could enjoy them out of the package. Now, I agree, right? I think that that is the, that is the first step towards doing it. The problem with that is <laughs> the packaging, it, although the cardboard boxes will pack flat, right? Right, right. The packaging is made of plastic. Right. And if you're going to, you can't pack the plastic. Flat. Look at this. I mean, I've got um, a character out of the fifth element who's one of the police. <laughs> but nobody wow. wanted him. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> nobody wanted him. And now I've got him in his packaging. Out of the packaging, he'd be worth less, right? Who wants? Well, could you? display them on top of the packaging oh. and then if you don't want it throw the packaging out after a while if you that's, miss it if you miss it being in the box give it a little bit because then it wouldn't take up any more space mm. yeah but i mean but then wouldn't it take up twice the space if you're keeping the packaging i mean look, that's christopher yeah. lloyd as mm. a klingon from oh star trek God. 3 that's amazing you have like an amazing assortment. Well, no, but so do you. That's why we're talking about it. I mean, I wouldn't just bring this up with anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I'd hate, I I'd hate for you to go away with that impression. No, this is just for you. This is all special. <laughs> I'm going to move it up so you can see more. Oh, yeah. Let's see. This is amazing stuff. My favorite are the uh, Frida and Agneta from ABBA. That oh, that's it. Well, as as we we right. we have just played Dancing Queen for you, and I see yeah. you on your wall. You've even got a "You Are the Dancing Queen." Is it a print or is it a, a painting? It's a gift from my my husband, um, because you know I am the Dancing okay. Queen. So now yeah, here's the thing. I was going to talk about this a bit later, but it's come up naturally. Okay. Um, Abba. I always think Abba in the UK. It's they are um ubiquitous in the uk yeah. and have been since birth I mean, but growing up i was always under the impression that in the states abba weren't really a thing is that right that's right and it was only because of a dear friend growing up when i was little i had this wonderful friend maida barber and maida um one of her parents was from finland and they always spent time in the uk and in europe and because of that she had like the best album collection and she knew all about abba so she introduced me to abba and we would you know dress up and i would be frida and she would be anyata and we would give concerts to anyone who would sit down and listen to us <laughs> and we would dress up in outfits and so that was really my foray into abba because it wasn't they weren't very big here i mean dancing queen i think was their only number one here but and that's changed now, right? Are, are they right. big now? They're kind of oh, now, yeah. now, now they're huge again, right? Now they're huge. I think Mama okay. Mia really like had a lot to do with that. Okay. But did you yeah. think Mama Mia was a lot of people's first introduction to ABBA? I do. I feel like, you know, you know, I've, I have friends and um, people I've met who've like, oh yeah, I love ABBA. I love Mama Mia. And they like, you know, recite the movie and the, you know, musical I'm like, I've been with ABBA for a year. Like, <laughs> I've known about them forever. So I've been there, not since the beginning, but I've loved them sure. since I was little. <laughs> because when, um, because we from Britain uh, were part of the Eurovision Song Contest and we've always been part of the Eurovision Song Contest. And so every year we're kind of reminded of ABBA and mm -hmm. the ABBA one and they're like, yeah, part of our society. But when 
because Will Ferrell made that film Eurovision That's right. what, a couple of years ago. And I saw that a lot of American people that had seen the Will Ferrell movie were kind of like in disbelief that oh, this is a real thing. We thought it had been invented for the film. Oh, exactly. I mean, because we didn't, to my knowledge, we're not, obviously, we're not part of it, not being in Europe. But yeah, that's, I think it's such a novelty here. I mean, that when the film came out, everyone was so kind of enamored and surprised and thought, that's so creative. <laughs> but it's a yeah. real thing. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's and huge. It's, it's huge. huge. Absolutely. And I used to just wish I lived in Europe so that I could, you know, just just be part of all of that. Well, I'd say that ABBA and the Eurovision Song Contest have kind of had a thing where they were huge in the 70s. They went for a period where there's a sort of downturn where no one took it seriously and everyone thought it was silly. Right. And now suddenly it's sort of had this upswing again of people going, that's quite fun, right? Yeah. Why, why have Absolutely. we thrown this away? Exactly. <laughs> And I'm so excited because I just bought my tickets to ABBA Voyage yeah. for the whole like, so I get to come to London next May and experience it. And I'm like so thrilled because I know I was too young to see them in concert. Sure. Now I, I can't even quite grasp what this is. Are they there or are they holograms? They're holograms, but it's, you know, the original members have been, you know, digitized mm -hmm. and they've done all the movements, they've sung all the songs, and then they have these digital versions of themselves as, as they say, at the height, you know, of ABBA when like 1979, um, when they're all very young, because I think it was Benny who was like, no one wants to see us this age performing, so... I don't know if that's I true, that right? Do. I think they Neither. do. I see them. <laughs> I think that's I'd the whole point. I don't want to see a hologram. I'd go and see them. I'd go and see them. My, um, well, I mean, if you're going to go and watch Mamma Mia <laughs> in a theatre where you're watching actors singing ABBA for mm. £70 a ticket, then I think you'd be willing to watch the actual people that originally sung it slightly <laughs> older singing it. I mean... I'm willing to see any related ABBA thing, but that's, you know. I think with bands like that, often what you're paying to see is a kind of thing where you're saying to them, thank you, thank you for the music, yeah. if you like, and then go, you would say like, and I think what, what you're getting is you're showing them that you like them. And if they're not there and they've sent like an avatar of, right. of a computer graphic version of them, I think that's a waste. I think they should go out. I think if they went out there, they would have a great time because people would be out there to yeah. see them and not, not a, they don't, they're not looking to see a hologram. They want to see the real people and go, we like you. And that's often what going to see people is, I think. I think I, it's often a, a, there's an exchange happening. Mm -hmm. I agree. And then there's the chance that you could actually, you know, go backstage and meet them. Sure. Or the fact that you're just in the same place. You're in the same yeah. orbit at the same time. There's a bit of us Amazing. flying around the world. But this this moment, we're all in the same place. Right. Exactly. Have you got tickets to see them backstage? Uh, no. Oh, God. I wish. I wish. I wish. Um, my wonderful Swedish publisher, um, one of them is really good friends with Benny. And when um, All the Bright Places, they signed All the Bright Places, they sent me a little autograph from Benny and Bjorn. And I was just so thrilled. And then every time I see them, I was on tour in Scandinavia four years ago this month. And I was like, no. 
do you know Frida? Because she's always been my idol. And just the thought of meeting her and they're like, somehow we will, we will see if we can make this happen. But it has not happened yet. So doesn't mean it won't happen. Doesn't mean it won't happen. Exactly. And and it's more likely to happen now when they're doing press and they're promoting this thing that's coming up than ever. That's true. And I will say, like, you know, as much as I've always fangirled over them, they've, Benny and Bjorn, I mean, all of them really have, like, taught me so much about writing, like, so much about, like, they put themselves out there into their songs and everything in a way that I thought was so, like, raw, but also they made it palatable and, like, accessible. And I think that's, you know, I've always found that very inspiring, as well as I love to do the dances, of course. Yeah. Sure. And I wouldn't but say... The, go on. I think that for for us in England, um, the sort of like songs that you learn through osmosis as you're growing up, and the Beatles are definitely that. And yeah. I think that ABBA are pretty much as close as you get to like the 70s Beatles, where um, I've got a tiny little niece, she's not even two yet, um, and she's learning to talk. And my mum is a huge ABBA fan, and my sister is an ABBA fan because my mum is an ABBA fan. And now I've got this niece, and if you say no me, no you, she'll go, aha. And, you know, she's learning to talk through ABBA songs, and she sings, she says ABBA, ABBA, and then we play ABBA songs for her, or they play ABBA songs for her. And, um, yeah, it's kind of like this multi-generational kind of, uh, music that like I don't know who doesn't like ABBA hmm. well I you know my parents were always so happy that I was listening to ABBA and then I think once I got into like Cheap Trick and like other you know people who are like not quite as you know shiny clean. and right clean yeah. I, <laughs> I remember you know my mom just being like oh god I knew that was inevitable but I just wanted you know I was like so happy for the the early ABBA years with you Sure, but then <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to speak badly about Cheap Trick either. So uh, no. let's. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm conscious now. I'm conscious now that we can go off on tangents, and this show is all about tangents. But I am <laughs> conscious what we've barely spoken about your book, which I do want to do, and then we can talk about something else in a in a moment. Let's 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 talk a bit about your book. So your new book is "Take Me With You When You Go," and it's written with. David, is it Levithan? Levithan, that's right. Good, good. And it is, um, it's a story of kind of two, I mean, we're kind of shifting gear, but there's there's two, (laughs) it's a story of two teenagers, both of (laughs) brother and sister, both going through a kind of abuse Mm storyline. And it's told, and there's probably a clever name for this, it's just told through emails between them, essentially. And the okay. occasional, the occasional other thing, but that's, um, and in fact, I'm talking about it. Do you want to talk about it? Sure. That's it's, you know, it's, it's, um, David, I've always admired and always read, and I just love his work and have loved him before I, I ever got into young adult. I'd started my career in adult novels, um, nonfiction and historical fiction, and then my first young adult event I ever did was with David Levithan for All the Bright Places, which was amazing. And I fangirled and he was so gracious and lovely. And then years later, a reader was saying um, on Twitter, asked me, 
which author would you most like to collaborate with? And I said, oh, David Levithan, hands down. And David never goes on Twitter, but he happened to see that. And then a week later, I received an email from him saying, be careful what you wish for. And he had attached a chapter, which was Ezra's first chapter. And he said, I don't know if this will go anywhere, but if we want to do this together, I have a rule, which is we never talk about it with each other. So David and I wrote this book about a boy who wakes up one day, a 15-year-old boy who wakes up and realizes his 18-year-old sister is missing. She's gone. It seems like she's taken some things and left the house and he doesn't know where she is and all she's left him is an email address. And so we wrote this book back and forth. I wrote B, he wrote Ezra, and we never talked about what was going to happen. So when I, I was him. <laughs> I was going to ask that, but then I thought it seemed ridiculous that that is no way how you've done it. Oh, I know. It seems ridiculous. And that's how we did it. And I've never written a book that way. And uh, David's I, I've never done a collaboration and a book before. And David has done many. Um, so I was like, oh, my gosh, this goes against everything like I've ever done. But it's so, so it is just you writing emails to each other and you've you've yeah. you've as char in character and you've put them together. That's, That's right. Brilliant. That's, That's right. so brilliant. And it, and it was great because like Ezra would, you know, I B never knew what Ezra was going to do. Ezra didn't know what B was going to do. And it was so authentic because I didn't know what David was going to do and he didn't know what I was going to do. And I'm so proud of this. At one point, David said, I threw him for probably the biggest creative loop of his life with a surprise that I sent him. And he was like, I don't know if that's good or bad, but he, then he sent me one that was like, it upped the ante and then we just like pushed each other from there. Yeah, I very nearly asked you if that's how you wrote it, but there was a bit of me thinking, don't ask that because she'll say, <laughs> no, you're an idiot. Of course we spoke about it before. Nope. Mm -mm. That's how you did it. How did that's you know true. it was over? That's a great question. I think that we just kind of knew instinctively and, um, you know, you just, I think, I always think like, you know, the pacing kind of in your bones as you're going through a novel and it's like a road trip in a way, you know, where you're starting, you know, where you're ending, but you know, there are all these detours along the way that you don't expect, but there is a certain kind of flow to it. And I think we just kind of knew as it was winding its way to the end. And we actually, I think, had a brief email exchange where we were like, I think we only have about maybe 50 pages left of this. And and we were in agreement about that. We didn't talk about what was going to happen in those 50 pages, but yeah. And so um, I always like to ask about like the technical side of, mm. of it. So that must be quite good to know that your sort of like working day is done once you've written this email. Yes. It's like, I mean, it was interesting because David and I were writing, I mean, this started years ago and we both had many other projects that had to take precedence because they came first. And so sometimes we would go weeks or months without hearing from the other one, depending on what, you know, we were touring, we were writing, we were publishing all these things. And then all of us, and then sometimes there would be a flurry. And then once we had the contract with Random House, once we sold the book to them and told them we were writing this book, um, then it became faster because we had an actual deadline. So we had to like, you know, and it, and it was, it was very satisfying sending it off because when you're writing a book by yourself, you can't do that. 
You can yeah. only email yourself and then you have to do all the work, but it was uh, great uh, having a partner. Right. You mean, yeah, you mean sending your email off for that day and then right. and kick the, kicking the ball into someone else's court. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, you like, can't do like anything until you hear back. Right. Exactly. There's nothing I could do until I, because I couldn't write ahead because, you know, I didn't know what I was going to be responding to and reacting to. Wow. And it was funny because sometimes Ezra was mad at B, his sister, and I would read that as B and it felt very like, oh, David's mad at me, you know, so it, it felt very authentic to write right. it that way. I'm surprised you haven't put more of this in the publicity. I think this is fascinating. And also when you sending it, and presumably you're the, or maybe, I don't know if you do write like that, maybe he's also the first person who's reading it. Yes. And is there ever a sense of them coming back and saying, hey, listen, can we just change A and B? Not at all. No, the only thing, like I, I didn't know early on if it was going to be a complete, um, you know, a book, told completely in emails. David knew that in his head because he had initiated it. So at some point early on, B is like, okay, Ezra, you need to come here. And, you know, and I, I was trying to get them in the same place. And Ezra wrote back and was like, no, I'm staying here. And so I knew then I was like, okay, we're staying in email form. So the only way we kind of communicated about, you know, that was through Ezra and B, not through David and Jennifer talking about it. Yeah, that is interesting. Because mm -hmm. it also then doesn't have a necessarily like a, a traditional narrative structure either. Right. So it doesn't right. have something where event, you couldn't really plot it in a, on a graph and say, well, at this moment, there's this incident and this incident. Right. Things are happening kind of randomly at the beginning and at the middle and they're happening all over the place, right? So it's kind of, yeah, yeah I, I guess that makes, it makes sense that you've done it like that. I just thought there's no way you could have done it. Well, and it was, it was, you know, and David had said this too, like my character was really responsible for pushing the plot because I had to figure out why she left, where she was, what she was doing. And I was, you know, so that was a little intimidating at first because, you know, David kept saying, like, don't think, just write. We're not going to talk about it. And I thought, oh, my God, like, this is, um, I don't know. Like, what is she going to do? Where is she? So I just tried, but I tried to follow that advice and just write what came out. And um, and it was, so it, it, it was a mystery story that we wrote together. There is a mystery element, but it was a mystery to us, too, as we wrote it. <laughs> so in the past, in the past, you've, you've written, like, historical novels. Yeah. Yeah. And so you must have had to do so much research in kind of like uh, the, the historical background of those of those characters. So to do something that's not not only not historical but in a different style, you're using technology of like modern technology. So tell us a little bit about the differences between writing a historical novel and writing something more like this. It's, you know, it, it feels very different because like in a way the historical novels were very deliberate because as you say, like you had to do so much research. There's so much I had to kind of preparation I had to do before I ever, you know, started actually writing pages of the books. Same with All the Bright Places, actually. In my other young adults, there were elements of research that had to be done, whether it was into mental health or 
Um, in Hilda Amp the Universe, Jack has something called face blindness, which means he can't recognize faces. So I had to do some research with all of the books. So with this one, you know, there is this element of abuse. El, um, Ezra and B live in an abusive household. And obviously David and I are sensitive writers. We want to get it right. We want to write responsibly and honestly. Um, and we did our due diligence by sharing the manuscript with people who um, are experts, people who have gone through similar things. But before that, you know, just writing it, having to write it without that kind of prep work was very, um, it was very freeing in a way because I didn't feel like I was, you know, putting so much pressure on myself and having to like make sure I incorporated all the research that I'd already done and, and everything. But at the same time, it was a bit like, oh, what's going to happen? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's like, the young adult thing feels like it's a real phenomenon of things. And, and it's interesting because it's not something that I would instinctively go to because I feel I'm too old for it. It's not, <laughs> it's not for me. But and <laughs> well, the, well, the, um, and I think of, but now it feels like such a kind of huge sort of publishing phenomenon and it's not a genre. It's just literally like, yeah, it's for that age group. And it's sort of a lot of it was quite surprising where it does have things like it has got bad language in it, it has mm -hmm. got kind of sex in it, it has mm -hmm. got it's not they're not children's books. And it's, it's like kind of it does feel like an odd thing to read. And you go, oh, this is this is interesting and it's not really what I would go to normally. And I was thinking about how you wrote those things and thinking, I feel that if I was trying to write for an age group that would be. 14 to early 20s mm -hmm. that i would be terrified as someone who is 42 now i'd be thinking i'd be frightened i'd write something ridiculous that a 14 year old would read and go who is this old man who's <laughs> telling me about things how do you get into that mindset me and nick come from a stand-up background and i think what's interesting is we're only usually ever talking about ourselves so we're talking to an audience through ourselves but when you're inhabiting characters do you ever worry that you're going to say something or that feels kind of does this feel authentic to a, a 14 year old reader oh. as a character as well just like would they hear that voice and think oh that's me or i can relate to that that's like my friends or does it do you feel like can i do that it feels like the world changes so quickly that i think getting yeah. into that headspace of someone who's 14 I can get into the headspace of someone who was 14 in 1994, but not necessarily of someone who's a 14 year old in 2021. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, I think that there's certain things that are universal, no matter what the time period, I think that, you know, the, the need and desire to be seen and heard and to know that you matter and to know that your voice is being heard and, you know, to be loved, to fit in, to be accepted, to know you're not alone. I think all of those things are universal, no matter the time period or where you live. And I've certainly discovered that with my books, because that's, those are messages that tend to be in all of my young adult books. And even more so after I did all the right places, because I realized how much readers need to hear that in terms of being authentic. I mean, you know, when I first wrote All the Right Places with my first YA, when I was thinking about it, 
if I thought about it too much, I was getting like, oh shit, like, I don't know. I haven't been 15 for a while, so maybe I can't, although inwardly, I think I'm kind of always 15, um, you know, but I think you have to just be true and honest and write honestly and out of your heart. And that's what I try to do with all my books. And I think that it helps to be in touch with that inner child and also to remember all those feelings. I think we still carry a lot of the feelings that we had when we were teens, we carry them into adulthood. You know, some of the ones that I was just listing. And Mm. I think tapping into that and really in an honest way, I think that really helps. It also helps to have young readers, like people in your life you trust who are of the age group who can go, okay, yeah, that that reads organically and that seems real, or maybe this seems a little bit like too adult, you know, yeah. in the way they talk or whatever. But I will say one more thing, like I have found the readers of young adult and actually about 55% of readers of young adult are adult, but my like readers who are in the age group are the smartest, most discerning shrewd, like passionate readers. And I think that's one reason there's so much smart young adult being written because our audience is very smart. Oh yeah. I don't doubt that. It's more that I was just trying to think it's more, I'm thinking of myself just trying to almost mold my brain into, could I write for a a 14, (laughs) 15 year old? Or would I just imagine they would think, who's this? Who's writing this? And I just, just in the idea that I'd half imagine I might write something in a plot and the character would go, but why on earth would they do that? They just go on this app that I've never heard of. And that's how they do that. And I'd be like, right, okay, there's an app that does that now. Whereas like, I mean, when I was 15, the idea of an email would have seemed quite like, uh, like, (laughs) what's this? Yeah, something futuristic. (laughs) sci-fi like it's completely and you know and a lot of why authors will write you know period pieces because you know they grew up in the 80s or the 90s and that's one way to do it but I think I also think too like I try not to date the books too much in terms of current slang or you know we kind of talked about that with all the right places like would Finch say this or would he say that and I want to keep it more classic, I guess, because the, mm. you know, you know, slang and things like that are going to kind of go in and out of fashion. But I think as long as you can get into the feelings as much yeah. as possible. It's a knife edge as well, isn't it? Because it's kind of, you want to, you want to kind of like appeal to uh, young adults, but at the same time, if you pander to them, you know, I just, I remember stuff when I was young, um, that I read that felt like, well, we don't talk like that, or that's not that's yeah. not genuine or authentic. But then, and you don't want to do something that's so off the now that it's out of date by the time it's even published. Right, right, exactly. So, so I guess that when you come into making historical novels, that's that actually helps a lot, doesn't it? It does, because then you really are immersed in that time period and you have to write up that time period. You know, you have to look up you know, swear words to figure out, like, was this actually in use in World War II or, you know, whatever time period you're writing in. And my nonfiction also was set in 1913 and then 1921. So I had to, even though it was nonfiction, I still had to, you know, kind of do that research as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's so interesting, um, just the difference between starting with kind of historical things and then going into this very modern, you know, world. 
The other thing I was wondering... But when you're looking, oh, when, but, but when you're looking back, you can see what's stuck. Whereas mm -hmm. when you're in the moment, it's yeah. kind of like, what's flavour of the week? Do you know what I mean? Um, and you can, you can see stuff that's kind of like, oh, man, um, I... When you look back on it in hindsight, you can kind of like go, well, we vaguely did that, but that, I think that was maybe fashionable for a month. Yes. Um, exactly. Whereas when you look back, you go, something like ABBA, you go, that sums up an entire decade. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> whereas, whereas we had like Bay City Rollers, and that was kind of like, they were not quite one hit wonders, but they weren't around for that long. I loved them when I was little, though. Cousins, <laughs> oh, my God. My cousins and I, my older cousins introduced me to the Bay City Rollers. And we would, of course, pretend that they were our boyfriends and they would give concerts for us. And I remember my cousin, my one of my older cousins was so obnoxious about it because she was always dating Leslie. And of course he sang almost every song and she would be like, oh, here's another one he's singing for me. Here's another <laughs> one he's singing for me. It was just so upsetting, but it was fun at the time. But it was also imaginary, right? Oh yes, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so you <laughs> had that, you know? Yes. Um, <laughs> so you wrote um, uh, Velvet Jean uh, Learns to Drive and that was yes. based on a short film that he made. Yes, a short film I made in film school that was actually based on a short story of my mother's because my mother was also an author. And I paid her a dollar for the rights. And it was <laughs> my thesis film at AFI, um, American Film Institute. And um, we won an Emmy for it, um, a student Emmy, which was so exciting. And then I just knew that I wanted to write something more with Velva Jean one day because I loved her character. And then she turned out years later to be like the first historical novel that I wrote. And I wrote a series all about Velva Jean. Did you plan Sorry, did you plan on uh, expanding the film into making a feature film uh, and then decide to make it into a book or uh, was it always a book? It was always a book. In my mind, it was always a book. I just, because by that point, I guess I had, I mean, I knew I wanted to do more with Velvet Jean. I didn't know what it would be. And then <laughs> I started shortly after I started, um, I wrote my first book, which was The Ice Master, which was nonfiction and Arctic expedition. And um, I, when I was thinking about the third book that I wanted to write, I started thinking about Velva Jean again. So I just always knew I kind of wanted to do a series of things with her and have her have all the adventures I would have wanted to have had I lived in the 1930s and 40s. And so then you've got, so you've kind of gone back to screenwriting now as well, haven't you? I guess with all the bright places you kind of, was that always something you wanted to do or get back into? Not really. I mean, it's funny because I actually went to film school because um, my mother had such wonderful writing advice. And she used to say, you know, I don't think anyone can really teach you to write. They can teach you certain mechanics and certain tools and things like that. And she said, you know, if you really want to write, maybe, you know, something like screenwriting could be a great, great discipline because it teaches you about writing succinctly, making every word count, writing dialogue, writing visually, and all of that can, you know, you can use it for screenwriting, but you can also use it for books. And so that's why I went to film school. And I just, you know, I, I always knew the book writing was my first love. It's where I felt more free. 
Um, I do enjoy the screenwriting, but it's a very different, it almost uses a different part of your brain because it's very formatted. Um, but I really enjoy the, I think, feel more at home in the books, I think. We've now got onto films. So it's probably a good time to talk about, we asked you to talk about some of your, or send us some of your favorite films. We've got a list of. <laughs> and what's interesting is one of them is a very old film, whereas everything else is quite recent, right? It is like, uh, although it's funny, I was because I was thinking about this question and I love, love, love old movies. I love Hollywood from the 30s and 40s. And um, I do love City Lights by Charlie Chaplin is one of my favorite films. I think it's probably my favorite romance. And it's um, kind of like tragic beauty. And but I also love like Magnificent Seven, The Dirty Dozen, like those movies um, from that era those are some of my favorites. So it's, you know, and I, I, this was long before film school when we had to watch films of all different eras. It was just, I think I've always gravitated toward the old ones, but then recently there've been so many new ones that I've loved. So it's, I really just ingest as much film and television as I can. Cause I, I think there's so much great storytelling. And amongst them, you've got, what I noticed is you've got a lot of the, th you've got a lot of the Avengers movies as you can sort of see from your love them yes <laughs> but you say especially infinity war which is kind of interesting because that's the sort of first part of their big two-parter they did two yeah. years ago i don't know yeah. I, don't, I can't remember what years year in anymore maybe it's and why why that one then what was i think you know i actually saw infinity war i think i saw it maybe six times in the theater in the theater when it first came out, you know, and of course I've seen it many times since um, streaming, but I just, there was something so I think beautiful and heartbreaking and it spoke to all the things I really love in a film. The characters are so amazing and the, um, the chemistry between the actors and then the writing. And I thought it was just a beautiful film and it just devastated me, but in a way that I wanted to be devastated. I thought that was interesting because I remember before it came out thinking this is the kind of one which this is where it's going to fall apart because <laughs> you've got far too many characters. I thought right. you can't do this. There's too much plate spinning in this film. Right. And you're going to have people. And I thought it was, I thought it did a really clever job of introducing someone for 10 minutes. They go away. Mm -hmm. Another set of characters, 10 minutes, they go away. And then but at the end, I remember thinking this is quite unsatisfying. And then it's mm -hmm. at the end you realize that the whole movie is about the villain mm -hmm. and it's like oh right that's it's it's a it's his story it's yeah. not about any of the heroes the mm -hmm. main character is the bad guy right or is he a bad guy depending right. on opinion but he's pretty bad he's pretty right. bad to be fair <laughs> he is yes he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah but i thought it was i, I love the way they kind of divided you know they they had like three groups so that you could you know, keep track of all these characters, but these people were here and these people were here and these people were here. And, um, but then I love the way they all came together at the end. I think I've always loved stories and Magnificent Seven is one of those where you take these very, you know, different people and you throw them together to fight a common cause. I just, something about that has always spoken to me and I thought they did it beautifully. That is good. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what else is like that. Uh, I guess. Mm -hmm. Galaxy yeah. Quest. Galaxy Quest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, oh yeah, I I I remember uh, absolutely loving Infinity War, um, and I was in a way I found that 
uh, more satisfying than a lot of the films that were leading up to it. Mm. Um, I'm I'm more of like a Batman DC fan um, wow. in general, but not necessarily mm. films. And yeah. uh, the Marvel films, I sort of like f- felt sort of like exhausted by. And then when it got to Infinity War, I was like, okay, and I loved it. Um, what was the final one though? End the game. End game. Mm-hmm. And I so, thought that was great too, but I just there was something about Infinity War that I just loved even more. I think wrapping up a story is less fun than yeah. throwing out possibilities, you know. I, and I think that I think I thought um Endgame was probably I think Infinity War is my favorite Marvel movie. Mm-hmm. Um and then I think Endgame was sort of close, but there was just something about, and I'm also kind of surprised that those two films felt so different from each other. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like one film cut in half. It was like, right. this is a film, and now we've got another film, and it had a different feel to it, different tone yeah. to it. There were different characters that had different uh, precedent in it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I really loved Infinity War. I did the- too. And the characters in Take Me With You When You Go, they mention that the sort of Marvel heroes come up several times during the sort of reference points of <laughs> people asking each other, like, who's your favourite? or Who do you most relate to is the... Mm-hmm. And it's funny because, I, you know, I've, I've kind of collected comics since I was a kid, but I rarely think like that. I was going, who do I relate to? Oh. Do you, who do you... I've never really thought of it like that. I but, suppose... But I- but that's like the main point that Marvel made, right? When Stanley mm. was making them, he was thinking, because I'm not like an expert, Nathaniel worked in a comic book shop and I stopped looking for stuff when I found Batman. So I was just like, there's Batman, that's fine. But <laughs> right, isn't, that whole point, isn't the whole point of Marvel that everyone has very human problems, that they're superheroes mm-hmm. with human problems? So Peter Parker is kind of like a nerdy kid that gets picked on and Iron Man has like a drink problem. And, <laughs> and you're meant to kind of like go, yeah, I relate to Iron Man or whoever. But um, yeah, so I guess you that's... relate to anyone. No, I mean, like I probably, uh, yeah, as I would say, I'd probably say Spider-Man. But it's interesting, like, I, I don't know Spider-Man. when you'd say, but when I, I'd find it very difficult for Do someone you? who would relate to Iron Man. I was like, mm-hmm. who are they? who's that guy who relates to him i get loving him because he's robert downey jr and he's right but it's you know and i think there's something inspiring in it too because i mean and that's true of you know dc as well but i mean when captain marvel came on i was like oh my god i want to see this a million times because i love captain marvel i love black widow i love their strength and their you know but their humanity also and and then I love Thor because he's so funny and, you know, he's Chris Hemsworth. I mean, clearly. So, but it, it, I think there's something in all of them that's just kind of evokes that, you know, oh, I can relate to this, but I also want to, you know, be like this or I, I wish I were that brave or maybe I could be that brave. Okay. So who do you relate to out of all of them? Probably... Well, Captain Marvel is my favorite, so I would probably say her. Although I also love Black Widow, maybe both of them in a in different ways. Okay, 
Okay, interesting. Mm -hmm. Here's another thing. Here's another thing. It's taking me with you when you go. I was struck by those email accounts. Oh. <laughs> are, are they, do you have them? Does the publisher have them? I do. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, I, have you had people email them? And I actually, that's a really good question. I should probably check. To oh, right. Yeah. Check. You haven't checked. <laughs> I have not checked. No, it's a oh, book wow. that has lots of different email accounts printed in them. And I was right. thinking, oh, this is interesting because surely the people reading it will be intrigued enough to see if they even get a undeliverable right. bounce back. And then he thinks someone else who's getting an undeliverable bounce back might go, well, I'm going to have that. Right. And then they then they are getting correspondence. So it made sense. But it's interesting. Part of me was thinking, that seems remarkably incurious. I reckon, like, maybe it's better to wait a couple of months and then <laughs> see what you get. But that's an interesting that's, idea, right? That 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 these... <laughs> that's like the um, Ghostbusters uh, helpline where they had, like, an answer phone message so that you could phone, phone the Ghostbusters and they'd say, we're out on a mission right now. That may be something that you could think about in the future. Um, Very good idea. Uh, well, um, we've we're, we're almost out of time with you, Jennifer. Um, I'm going to throw you over now uh, to Nathaniel, who is going to play with you the world famous, internationally renowned game, Better or Worse. Uh, Nathaniel, explain to Jennifer what that is. Well, Better or Worse is a game in which you have to say whether the next person on this list is better or worse than the person before based entirely on my opinions. And now I've already had an insight into this because I've uh, I've done a special one this week for you. So oh. I've made it all superheroes. <gasps> so I've got a superhero, better or worse. But yeah. it's not who you think is better or worse. You yeah. earn points based on whether I think they're better or worse. Uh, so I have to intuit what you think about whether I, Yeah, exactly. exactly. Okay, got it. Okay, beginning with Spider-Man. Mm hmm is Wonder Woman better or worse than Spider-Man? Better. Ignore me, by the way. <laughs> well, he might help. It depends. He knows me better. Oh, okay. But, yeah, but I don't. I don't have the answers. He doesn't have the answers necessarily. Okay, but you did say that you most relate probably to Spider-Man, so I would say worse. Worse is correct. Captain America, better or worse than Wonder Woman? Hmm. Um. Better. Hmm. That's a good one. In fact, I'm going to say better. I'm going to say better. Yeah. So there's two points. Okay. Superman. Better or worse than Captain America? Better. Hmm. No, I think worse. Actually, I, I'm not a fan of Superman. Worse. This is just me muttering to myself, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> He's better. <laughs> better. Better. Really? Superman. Sure. Okay. okay. Thor, better or worse than Superman? Well, I have to say better because he's Thor. I have to inject myself in there. Worse. Oh, what? Oh, yeah, I'm afraid so. Afraid okay. so. Batman, better or worse than better. Thor? Better, he's better than ever. I'm afraid you're going to say better. He's better. He is better. Hmm. Iron but Man. But he's better than everyone. He's better than everyone, not just Thor. <laughs> Iron Man, better or worse than Batman? Well, I think you're going to say worse. He is worse. 
even though he's technically but if it's a, a high i mean it's a high card it's, just, it's a high card it's a fun version of batman though isn't it yeah it hurts to say I'm these sorry things, you don't it's okay. only my opinion you can still express your own opinion this is it's fine okay. i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to diminish any of your opinions there come on they're, come they're, on they're, okay the incredible hulk better or worse than iron man better, uh, better. better. of course it is the green lantern better or worse than the incredible hulk worse <laughs> worse worse yeah obviously uh, the f- <laughs> The Flash, better or worse than Green Lantern? Oh gosh, better. Better. Black Panther, better or worse than The Flash? Better. Better. I mean, he's the Black Panther, definitely. That's a pretty good score. You've got an eight. (gasps) Yay! That's a good score. That's a good score. You've got a respectable eight. Okay. Do I win? Do I win something like a Funko Pop? You win one of Nick's Funko Pops. That you he's gonna, win in the box. Is it? Yeah, he's gonna send you. You win the packaging to <laughs> to one of my Funko. You win a bookmark, Jennifer. Oh, <laughs> uh, you got an eight, which isn't um, as good as Helen Ledbetter with ten. It's not as good okay. as Dane Baptiste and Marina Seretis with nine. But you are as good as Baz from Massive Wagons with eight, and you're better than Steen Raskopoulos with seven. Jamie Adams, Carl Gas, Izzy Sitting, Miles Jupp with six. Sarah Gibbs, Laura Jean Marsh, Steve Bouget with five, and that's it. I bet they got five, that's rubbish. So you're right <laughs> bang in the middle there. You did very well. That's that's slightly above average on, on percentages. That's, I'll um, take that. Okay. Slightly above average. Um, so uh, congratulations with your book. Congratulations Thanks. with yeah. uh, your, your career. Uh, uh, take Me With You When You Go came out at the end of August. It's out now. Um, and uh, Jennifer Niven, welcome to the Fan House Clubhouse. Uh, <laughs> thank you for your time. Thank um, you. I've been Nick Helm. This has been the Thurgood Metcalf. We've been talking to Jennifer Niven. Everyone out there, look after each other, look after yourselves. Uh, don't do anything silly and uh, <laughs> respect people's <laughs> boundaries. There you go. <laughs> good, good advice. Goodbye. Sure. <laughs>